Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Maureen Murat. I am serving as the moderator for this panel, Perspectives on Regulation. Um, before we get started, um, I just want to say that we'll try to have this um, a conversation as opposed to just an ask and answer, and then we'll take questions at the end. All right, so first I'll ask the panelists to introduce themselves. Uh, I guess we'll start with Matt on the other end. Great. So my name is Matthew Comstock. I'm a partner at the law firm of Murphy McGonigal. We focus largely on the financial services industry. In particular, I focus on securities regulation, trading of securities, uh, issuance of securities, regulation of, of different types of entities such as trading platforms, broker dealers, uh, clearing agencies, etc. And uh, you know, part of our practice is in the blockchain sphere, advising folks on you know, trading platforms, creating trading platforms like ATSs for digitized assets, advising on you know, capital raising issues and, and things of that nature. Uh, before I was in private practice, I was at the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, as an attorney for a number of years. Awesome. Good morning, everybody. Still 1130-ish. Yes. Uh, Alana Gombert, I am the CRO of MetaX. We are a blockchain crypto company uh, out of Los Angeles, California. And we have a token, AdToken, which is a utility slash consumer token that is used for voting. And I also am a co-founder of Digital Asset Trade Association. It's the first crypto slash blockchain lobbying group uh, we are a global organization. One of my co-founders is here somewhere, John Wise, who's CEO of Loki. Uh, and we're working on thinking about how we legitimize and help educate on the crypto and blockchain sphere. I say that separately for a reason. We'll get into that in the panel. Nice to meet you. Good morning. My name is Joel Telpner. I am a partner and head of the fintech and, and blockchain practice for a law firm called Sullivan Worcester, and I'm in the firm's New York office. I got started in this space in 2014, which I think makes me ancient in blockchain world, um, in representing Overstock and doing the first security by a public company on the blockchain, and I've been working in the space ever since, and doing all kinds of ICOs for clients on a global basis. Um, in addition to the transactional work, I do regulatory policy work on blockchain and ICOs for the Global Blockchain Business Council, the Blockchain Research Institute, and the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance. It's great to be here today. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. My name is Olienka Denarin. Um, I come by the way of uh, securing regulation. I'm a chief compliance officer uh, with the Registered Investment Advisor Firm, but uh, at the same time, I'm also a um, cybersecurity expert. So I come to you to discuss the cybersecurity aspect of um, blockchain and cryptocurrencies. All right, thank you. Um, and I'll just say a little bit about myself. Um, my name is Maureen Murat. I am owner of Crowdy Advisors, which is a business consulting firm that um, provides technical assistance to people who want to start a business and raise funds for their business via equity crowdfunding. Um, and I'm also an attorney, so I, sir, I am a, of counsel at Cogent Law Group here in DC. All right, so the first question, even though it's one line, it might sound loaded <laughs> um, because there's a lot that can go into it, but just a brief answer from each of you. Um, given the different fields that you're all in, what would you caution creators of and purchasers slash investors of cryptocurrencies? Like, what would you think them, what would you tell them to be mindful of? Maybe one or two things. As we start off on a, on, a, okay. <laughs> scary, on a scary foot, I heard the previous presentation. So, um, yeah. I actually emailed back to that question. I, I think that you know there are opportunities, obviously, in this space. You've seen the market cap uh, of the market overall globally. Um, from a, a cautionary tale perspective, I will say that you should look at the papers, uh, look at what's just being described, and see if there's actually a product before you buy a token. That's what I do. Uh, and then I think due diligence is important for any sort of purchase, be it a pair of shoes or a cryptocurrency or a utility token, which I separate out on purpose. Um, so that's, that's mine. Do, do your homework. Well, I, I guess if I had to come up with one thing, well, I, I say personally, I do not believe that all tokens that are issued should be regulated as securities, and I don't believe all tokens are securities. Uh, what I would caution is that the market 
is general throws around the term utility token. I've yet to have a client walk in my office and not say to me, my, my token is utility token, don't worry, it's okay. Um, and so the, the cautionary note is that there really is no such thing as a utility token. It's a made-up concept under U.S. laws and regulations. There's nothing in the law that says if you call your instrument or financial transaction or device or whatever utility, it's automatically not a security. So while the market likes to talk about utility tokens, it doesn't really exist under law. So you have to really be careful and look under, underneath the token and look what it's being issued for and why it's being used. Now it's being used. And if it's purely being used really to, to, to raise capital and in the targeted market are crypto investors that like to speculate, it probably really is a security and not a so-called utility token. I do want to say one thing. In Wyoming, there is a utility token yes. definition now, which I worked on with Caitlin. But but um, so beyond that, you're right. In the U.S. in the U.S. law, aside from Wyoming, there is a definition of a utility token yet. Um, before you go, I, I would just add that I think when people say utility tokens, they're just to your point, Joel. There's no meaning to it. But what they're trying to say is that it's not a security, which right. is something different, right? Correct. So go ahead. Um, I would give two caution. One for the regulators. Don't be too quick to um, come up with regulations right now. We're still in the beginning phases of trying to understand blockchain and um, the ability for uh, cryptocurrencies as well as the technology to take us to the next level. Um, so when you start to develop regulations, um, you're kind of narrowing the box right now. There's a lot that can change within a year, within five years, within 10 years. So understand that even though we're classifying it as a security right now, um, it might not be a security down the road. Um, for the investors, what I would caution coming from the cybersecurity aspect is understand that you're on the internet. Um, so whatever information that you're providing um, in the groups that you're in or um, to an ICO when it comes to the KYC Know Your Customer rule, um, understand that that information is not always secure. Because you're on the internet, there's going to be hackers out there. And these individuals are sophisticated. Um, and I hate to say it, but we might be at a point where there might be a cyber warfare going on that we're not aware of. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not a cliche word, it's a word that not a lot of people know about, but it's something that we should be mindful, that our information, as we're learning, is very valuable. There are people out there that are making a lot of money off of our information, and when we go on this, um, when we go on the internet, we go into these communities, um, social media communities, and we start divulging too much information about ourselves, understand that there's people out there who are collecting that information and can pinpoint who you are, where you are, and what you're doing. And blockchain, as someone mentioned earlier as a speaker, that you know it's not entirely um, anonymous, um, so we can trace you and find out who the individual is. Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish between cryptocurrencies and, and tokens. Um, we we're talking about, we've been talking about tokens that are issued in ICOs or tokens that may be issued in our securities. I would distinguish those from cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, for example. Um, there are two different regulatory regimes that apply. If you're dealing with cryptocurrencies, for example, dealing with Bitcoin, uh, you know, an entity that's a trading desk, uh, that's, that's trading cryptocurrencies, is trading a commodity. I mean, the CFTC has, has said very clearly that, that Bitcoin is a commodity. And you know, as, as such, um, the CFTC is only going to exercise jurisdiction over trading in it if there's fraud involved for the most part, or if there's some sort of derivative that's created or, or, or some sort of margin extended to trade, to trade Bitcoin. It is important to remember, however, that, that FinCEN um, is going to be involved. Uh, you know, you're going to need to be, in all likelihood, a money transmitter if you're, if you're not, not trading on a personal basis, but trading on a commercial basis. The various states have money transmitter requirements, so you need to be aware that you may need to register in all 50 states if you're starting a business in cryptocurrency. On the other hand, if we're talking about tokens that are securities, that's the SEC's world. And if you're issuing a, a, a token that is a security, you need to do it consistent with the SEC's regulatory regime. And you also need to trade it consistent with the SEC's regulatory regime, um, which I think is probably workable. But there are some barriers that are being, or I shouldn't say barriers, there are some hurdles and difficulties that, that are being worked out with the SEC and its staff right now. That's true. 
That's right. And also the FTC, you forgot about them, but yeah. for a consumer, all the C's, yes. right? Yeah, for any consumer facing token, you know, the FTC is also an important player in all of this, especially on the fraud side. Um, well, I'll start with you, Alana. What um, role did you play in the Wyoming blockchain group in getting the utility token bill? Sure. So I was a helper, a worker bee. Um, okay. Caitlin Long, uh, this was her idea, and she spearheaded this. We, I mean, it's, it's kind of a funny story, and she tells it pretty well. Um, she tried to give Bitcoin to the University of Wyoming, and she couldn't do it because of the money transmitter laws and other things. Um, and so she also was from Wyoming. Uh, she's from Laramie. And she tried to pass some registration in Delaware, and it, it stalled. And she said, well, why not try in Wyoming? Wyoming has a very quick legislative process. They have citizen legislators, so they, they have full-time jobs as well as they serve the state, both in the Senate and the House. Um, and there's been a lot of firsts in Wyoming. The first woman to vote was actually um, in Wyoming. Um, the LLC was created in Wyoming. And so there's a lot of precedent there for quick and innovative work. And so Data, our group, was formed out of Davos. And we figured that Wyoming was the best possible place for us to help and be useful. And so we basically flew into Wyoming, Brittany Kaiser and myself, uh, John Wise, who's here somewhere, and helped lobby and did everything, anything we were asked to do in terms of helping to draft, helping to review, walking the floor between the House and the Senate. The, the building basically is very large and it's temporary and you walk back and forth and don't wear heels. And we lobbied the senators, we went out to dinner, we, we discussed our companies, we discussed we'd op we would open offices there if they passed legislation. We passed five crypto bills in all. And the spirit of it was, one, to define a utility token. Now we're moving away from that definition. It's more a consumer token now on the Hill. I know a lot of the organizations that are coming to talk to the SEC are talking about consumer tokens. And part of that is the bias that kind of surrounds the utility token and kind of the history around it where people can use that term, to your point, as a kind of a catch-all, like this is my token and here's what it does. Meanwhile, it's a pump and dump scheme, right? So we're trying to move beyond that with a different term. Um, but in general, you know, back to the Wyoming question, it was really helping on the ground and figuring out what would be useful for the U.S. Just remember, the U.S. is losing crypto businesses because Switzerland and Singapore in particular are being very friendly. So that most, a lot of the companies are domiciling overseas and not here. Does anybody want to um, talk a little bit more about the utility token versus the, I guess, non-utility token? Well, you know, look, the, the concept of a token is, is legitimately a new concept, mm -hmm. and regulators are appropriately struggling with how to treat it right. and not regulate it. And unlike a traditional security, many tokens do have a consumptive use. Mm -hmm. uh, people legitimately create platforms in which the token is necessary to access that platform or to buy goods and services on that platform. And that's different than a security. I mean, we don't take shares of IBM stock and walk into Starbucks and buy coffee. <laughs> and, and so it is appropriate to distinguish between these types of tokens that are being used for a platform and to make it operate. And at the end of the day, tokens are, are pieces of software code. It's, they're not financial instruments in the traditional sense. But I'm also sympathetic to the SEC's point of view because when you make that argument to the SEC, the SEC says, look, we get it, we understand that. But at the same time, we're looking at all these ICOs in the market where somebody has sold their token and they say, it's going to have all these great uses. Oh, but by the way, um, we're going to raise the proceeds to build this platform and it's not going to be ready for 6, 9, 12, 18 months. And so in the meantime, what are you going to do with that token? Well, you can hold it and wait, or you can hopefully find somebody else that will pay more than you paid for it, and you can sell it to them. So, you know, when the SEC sees that, they start to say, well, that looks like the type of investment people make in early stage companies where they're relying on a management team to make it work, and, you know, you're taking a big risk. And then, and then on top of that, the SEC says, you know, in addition, you know, you guys are out there marketing, and you're not out there marketing to the potential future customers of your platform, you're out there marketing to, to the crypto investor community, the folks that do take speculative investment positions in crypto and maybe trade in and out on a regular basis. And a lot of these ICOs are out there talking about how they're gonna get their current, their token listed on exchanges and how they may go out and burn tokens to support value. And so when you put all of that together, 
Notwithstanding the fact that we may think that these tokens have a consumptive and useful value and purpose that have nothing to do with securities, the SEC is looking at it going, well, guys, if you're going to raise capital and you're going to do it in a speculative way where nobody can use a token for a year, what are we supposed to do? Other than say, if it looks and sounds like a security, we've got to regulate it as such. Right. It, which, by the way, is not the worst thing in the world. I think everybody has an allergic reaction if you say um, your, your token's a security. And, and we can talk about today, said people want, there are all kinds of ways to issue a token in a regulatory compliant, compliant way that doesn't kill the token market. Right, that's true. And, oh, you were going to say something? Yeah, I, I think I think issuing a consumptive token that is also a security presents some some interesting issues under the securities laws. So, you know, if for example someone wants to issue a token that's compliant with the securities laws, let's say that you know, they have what's called a Reg D offering, right? It's a private placement of securities instead of a public offering. Um, it's to accredited investors, so essentially high net worth individuals, etc. That that's something that can be done without formally registering the security with the SEC. And let's say that that instrument that's issued is issued in tokenized form, um, and it's meant at a later date to be a a utility token. I'm, I'm hesitant to use that term for all the reasons people are <laughs> okay. discussing, but uh, you know, it, it has it has a consumptive use, and somebody wants to use that that token on whatever platform that's been designed to, to access to access the services or purchase the goods or whatever it may be. The problem at that point is this thing is still a security, so now it's being used on a system to purchase something to purchase services. Well, the SEC could very well look at that and say, "Aren't you selling a security back to the company? Aren't you doing?" what's called a tender offer, or, you know, isn't, isn't the, the company engaged in a tender offer? How do you take this thing that was formerly, a, or formerly, a security and now turn it into something that's not a security? We don't really get that concept, and it's not a concept that exists in the securities laws. Yeah. And, you know, so the, the SEC is aware of this issue. A lot of folks in the industry are aware of this issue, but no one's really figured out, can I have something that is simultaneously a security and a token? What I'm seeing now, and what I've, what I've worked with some folks on is, look, you want to issue security for capital raising purposes, and you want to issue it in tokenized form, fine. But that should not be the thing that you use to access the system later. And, and I recognize that this creates problems, you know, from sort of a technological and business perspective. Because now you've got a company that wanted to have a token that that, that had the consumptive purpose, and, and now a bunch of lawyers are telling them, look, the SEC, because of you know their their regulatory structure, basically is going to have a hard time with that. So create two separate tokens: well, create a tokenized security and create a consumptive token. I will say just, just to the final point of that, um, the, the lawyer piece, and no offense to lawyers in the panel, because I'm not a lawyer, but I think everybody else is. I do. You know, lawyers are good. Everybody. I think I think part of the issue with the initial ICOs is that there was a lot of guidance given to companies, uh, and the guidance was very fuzzy, and it was fuzzy for a reason, right? It was a brand new market, um, and the utility token piece was pushed very heavily by law firms to get around a couple of different uh, nuances that you're bringing up right now. That being said, as we watch the market go forward, the Howey test needs to change, mm -hmm. right? And everyone knows what that is, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so I'm seeing that. It's, or it's, it shouldn't be applied. I was going to say you can't correct. change the, the test. But yeah. Well, they could change it. I mean, they, they could. We could talk about a different way of changing how to measure a security, right? Right. 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 So call it a different name. Call it the Gombert test. I don't know. Like, something <laughs> be different. But you know, I think that's where we are very stuck in our securities law. If you look at Europe as an example, Europe is very currency focused, right? And the securities laws. Uh, for the most part, are, are a bit newer, and newer in scope, and they're very definitively separated from the currency laws. Um, and so how do you think about that in the construct of a global market, right? We can't regulate every single country for a cryptocurrency market because it won't go anywhere. So there needs to be some common ground, and the Swiss started this with their regulations and their definitions, right? And so how do we think about that going forward? I know the SEC has been very forward thinking, just thinking about how we're doing this. The CFTC has their test cases. I think the, the, the last one was the commodities case for the crypto piece, and I forget which case it was. So again, not a lawyer. Um, I think it was like three weeks ago, where, where they did win a case where it was determined to be a commodity in that case. 
Um, then we have the FTC thinking about consumers and tokens and fraud. So I think you know in the U.S. we have to think about how we work together to figure out how we foster this business. It's really important. I agree. Um, I think right now the SEC is battling with rules and regulation that pertains to one set of product and trying to apply it to a whole new technology and then a whole new different type of um, product. Not knowing how to classify it is a big issue and I think their best route is maybe consider a new regulation. Not necessarily applying it to the 1933 Act, mm -hmm. but applying it to maybe something that they sit down with the community and create. Because as I mentioned before, what we're seeing now is not what it's gonna be in some years from now. So in order to move forward, it needs a better way of regulating it. And I think self-regulation might be the best thing that the community can do is introduce ways to regulate. Because when you build from the inside out, it's, it's more effective than having someone that's outside trying to regulate you. And the best way, the most effective way that they can think of right now is applying old laws to new technology. And that's just not gonna benefit the, the current community right now. Um, I'll just pick back off of something that Matt said, that if you have this token that's considered a security, then you can't use it later, I guess, to, you know, to access the platform or, or anything like that. Do you think, what are your thoughts about a crypto asset then being its own asset class in that sense? Because then it's not a stock, it's not a bond, it's not necessarily equity. Yeah, I mean, if you take the asset out of the securities category, right. then the securities law issues go away. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the question, I had discussions with the Division of Corporation Finance is, that's, that's the group within the SEC, the division within the SEC, that effectively deals with um, issuances of securities and therefore sort of what is a security. A number of folks in that division are, you know, sort of pretty hidebound in that they're like, look, we have a regime that's been in place for 85 years. Um, we have a test that's been in place since 1946, the Howey the test. It works well. The technology is a new fact pattern to be applied to the existing law. And we come to a determination of whether or not something is a security by applying this unique fact pattern to the existing law. And you know, it's, it's difficult, I think, to move the, the staff off of that mentality because from their perspective, it served them well. I mean, one of them said to me, I was having a discussion about, about utility tokens and, and you know, that concept, and they said, well, orange groves had utility too, and that was a uh, reference to the Howey case, the 1946 yes. Supreme Court case. So I hear you, I agree that we can talk about the concept of an ICO and the fact that what you're selling somebody, if you're issuing a token to somebody in an ICO and you're not promising them any sort of economics, you're not saying, look, I'm, I'm gonna pay you return based on this token, I'm granting you equity, what have you. If none of that is going on, I understand the argument that it should not be a security. There is no reasonable expectation of profit there, um, you know, unless the, the company is also saying, yeah, but you know what, we'll, we'll put it on exchange and you can go speculate and, and make a bunch of money off it. If they're not doing that, it seems like a difficult argument to Well, there to is make. an issue though, because, so I'm hearing arguments from, the, from papers the SEC are putting out, and we are talking to agents on the Hill as well, but tokens are used in systems, right? So the systems are living and breathing things, so in our case, Case, we have a voting token. Now, there has to be a skin in the game for that token to work, right? So there's a price attached to it. It's like two cents. It's not like a crazy amount of money. And then the market decides that price. We never sold in exchanges. It was always listed by other folks. We never listed ourselves, but the secondary market did pop up. But there was a cap on our token, right? Was, there's a billion tokens out there, and that's it. And that cap is a conversation point because like, well, why is there a cap? I'm like, well, because there has to be a system that's healthy, and we are fractional. We have the, um, I think it's the ninth decimal place, so we, you know, we can carve that token up uh, into portions if we do run out. But you know, there needs to be a way for this system to be healthy and to actually, if you're voting, to have negative penalties. If you have you know, a limited amount of tokens, the thing is useless, right? And so that's our, our kind of our debate right now. If, well, so, I mean, again, I think you can issue tokens exempt security and make it work, but um, on an interim basis, at least, if you look at the Wyoming legislation, what Wyoming did was make a nice distinction between how, at least one way to distinguish between a security and a token that maybe is something else, and 
among the factors in the Wyoming legislation, you know, are, are the, is there a use for the token at the time it's sold? Um, how was that token marketed? To whom was that token marketed? And so if you put in a number of constraints, you know, right. Wyoming no, legislation basically said, we, we can recognize a different type of token. And so right now there are conversations going on with the SEC, um, the various trade groups and, and other organizations are having, uh, and I, you know, who knows for sure because we'll see it if and when we see it, but we think that we're close to getting some type of no action relief from the SEC that will follow a pathway that is not significantly dissimilar to the Wyoming approach. Uh, and you know, that'll still impose a number of constraints because I mean, it will limit the timeliness when you can raise your capital and for people that really need capital to build a platform, that's gonna be a problem. And it will, you know, it will you know, certainly annoy the portion of the market that are out there, you know, buying and selling crypto as an investment because you'll, you'll have significant constraints around that. But at the same time, I think it will be progress if this comes out as we expect that will allow us to recognize a category of token that we can get out of the market without having to worry about whether or not it's security. Yeah, and that language is being mirrored. The, the utility token language is being mirrored right now in Colorado. We're actually yep. introducing that in, this week. Um, so yes, you know that, that, should, that should be propagated through the states over the next couple of years. Um, just to take a step back, because the, um, there is there are no tokens, et cetera, without the blockchain technology, right? And so a lot of the liquidity events and exchanges and things like that are part of this um, ecosystem. So Olinka, I mean, I'm sure you've heard that you know when they talk about blockchain technology, it's safe, it's immutable, you know, there's it's trustless, so. It's, you know, there shouldn't be any issues. But what do you think are um, some of the, you know, issues that we should be thinking about, especially with the exchanges that have been breached, you know, some of them more than once? Yeah. Um, I, definitely data breach is a big thing with these exchanges. I think the, the biggest issue with these exchanges is that it's coming from individuals who are, um, not really experts or experience in running a digitized uh, business. And so therefore, in the back of their mind, they're really thinking about the technology and not necessarily securing the data within that technology or within their group. Um, one thing that I found is that a lot of the data security breaches have been due to human error, which is you know, basically how a lot of these uh, security breaches happen. Um, if one group has a password and they're sharing it with other admins within a group, that password is eventually going to get out or uh, not be secured. In regards to the exchanges, doing some careless things like sharing your uh, private key with other individuals or not really storing your wallet storage um, securely and um, not using two-factor authentications and just the, the simple things that they can do, they're just taking shortcuts and that's why sometimes it's internal issues um, that leads to data breaches or just some savvy individual who happens to realize that they can access certain things that's unbeknownst to the ICO uh, community or the exchange, the ownership. Do you foresee there being some some regulations for, I guess, protecting that type of data? Because it's, I mean, yes, it's on the internet, but then the way that the blockchain works, it's yeah. supposed to, there's supposed to be some cryptography, right, attached to it to make it not be so easily penetrated. Yes, I do. Um, the reason why is because even in the securities industry, the SEC has given guidelines on cybersecurity and some of the frameworks that you should have in place. Um, so definitely with cryptocurrencies and the exchanges, there will be uh, cyber-related guidelines that will be sent out. One of the biggest things is, you know, when you keep hearing about these breaches, you're dealing with people's money. This isn't just, you know, some uh, fictitious currency that, you know, people are playing with. It's actually people's livelihood. So if it, a lot of exchanges continue to not secure the data, the regulators across the globe will definitely start to implement um, cybersecurity guidelines for them. Um, so what about, I know you said something about self-regulation and the community kind of regulating itself. Do, um, does anyone have an opinion about self-regulation? 
from the blockchain community <laughs> uh, opinion. Yeah. Um, so I, I used to run advertising standards before I joined MetaX and before I started this trade association with my co-founders. So I'm very well versed with self-reg, especially in the lens of the FTC <laughs> because of the advertising world. Um, I will say that I think a new industry, especially uh, a technology industry, I think it's critical that self-reg should be allowed. Um, and I think it's a normal state of progression, right? And I think this trade association that we started, Data, came out of a decentralized, trustless world. And one of the reporters asked us, well, how does that even work if you have one centralized lobbying organization for a decentralized group? Really? But I, I, I do think that coming together and focusing on important subjects like securities regulation, uh, like um, thinking about the U.S. law overall and keeping business here in the U.S. because, again, other countries are lobbying for the crypto business pretty heavily. That rallying cry is definitely resonating with the community. They want to stay in the U.S. if they're Americans, right? Period, full stop, including myself, mm -hmm. right? I do have a crypto company. I do have a token, right? So I've been talking to the Swiss. I've been talking to folks in Singapore just because they're lobbying for us to domicile there, right? So, you know, I think there are specific rallying cries where self-reg and understanding what the needs are for the community near term and then long term are really, really important. I mean, I just add that I, I guess I'm a little, I'm divided on that. Um, but I also know that oftentimes from self-regulation come like best practices, right? And so then people kind of learn to accept, okay, this is how this works. This is what people expect, even though it's not really written down anywhere. So um, I, I guess I'm not totally against self-regulation, but I guess to a certain extent, I could see how it would be very helpful. Yeah, um, we want guidance. We want, I mean, we want guidance. It's like it's like driving a car. It's not my analogy. I'm stealing it, but it's like driving a car down the road. People are getting pulled over, and you're like, what's going on? Like, there's no speed limit posted whatsoever. You have no idea what the rules are, but yet, you know, things are happening to folks around you. It's like we do want clear guidance. Absolutely. Uh, and the market is, I think, ripe for best practice opportunities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, one of the ways that we can, as a global market, make sure that we don't get over-regulated or improperly regulated is to come together to create best practices. I mean, for example, there's no consistencies, I think somebody talked about already today, with respect to white papers. Some are well-written, some, you know, look like they've been written by Martians. And, and they're disclosure documents. Whether we want to treat the token as security or not, they're still disclosure documents because they are what people look at before they make an investment. So. Whether or not we, we don't have to agree on what the token is to come together and say there should be best practices, for example, on disclosure for white papers, or best practices on disclosure going forward, where a company is obligated to provide some type of periodic updates as to how they're spending the proceeds, or you know, giving ongoing financial information to token holders. So these types of things, you know, I, I think the market can do without waiting for regulators to kick us down the road first. Right. Yeah. I think for a decentralized community, it's important that we maintain that label um, because once the regulators start coming in, then they will centralize it. And right now, the beauty about this community is that it's global. Like I, we can reach anybody anywhere and any time. And you know, knowing that even the poorest farmer, if he has access to the internet, he can have access to this technology that we're building. I think it's important, um, and not just to have it trickle down from the top, but have it build up from the bottom. If we want to maintain that power, we need to self-regulate ourselves. All right, well, before we take questions from the audience, does anybody have any last words, party words, something they wanted to say, but it didn't come up? I, I wanted to mention, you um, asked about uh, some of the cybersecurity-related regulations. There is the GDPR that has come up in Europe. I was wondering if we are talking about that today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, it is something that all the community should be uh, mindful of. Um, right now, a lot of the businesses are trying to weed through the regulation and see how it applies to them. I think for our community, it's important for us to be mindful of that information, especially ICO um, founders and um, people involved, because the information that you collect 
is important, one thing, but also can um, have some regulatory hurdles to, that you might need to abide by as well. Absolutely, and just to add to that, for the GDPR piece in particular, the GDPR K-K for kids, and it's, it's stronger than COPA. So, you know, if you are marketing in any way to children, you have to actually separate it out now. I think it's 16 and below is defined as a child in the European law. And so, yes, I can't believe we didn't talk about it at all in this panel, but yeah, it's a, it's a huge thing. I think it's May 25th, and I'll be in Brussels parting it up with the GDPR folks. Um, I guess one, just one quick comment on jurisdiction, because you said, you know, like you're being enticed by other countries. And I, I think, you know, I started out measuring the utility token, perhaps, misconception of policy part, and I think the same thing applies with protected jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. People are often chasing jurisdictions, saying, well, if I move my, my mm -hmm. token issuer to Gibraltar or, or to Liechtenstein or Switzerland, everything's going to be okay, and that is a falsehood, because the real regulatory challenges are not where you are issuing your token from, it's where you're selling your token into. So. Yeah jurisdictional and regulatory concerns. It doesn't matter where your token is, is organized from. Whatever country you're selling into, you have to make sure that you're complying with the regulatory provisions of that country and that you're reaching out to those buyers in the right way and that you're complying with those local jurisdictional laws. Um, otherwise, going somewhere else doesn't really make any difference other than if you're trying to hide from a regulator. Well, it gives you banking options. Just to be really clear, the U.S. banks right now, every time guidance comes out from the SEC or the CFTC, they get squirrely and cut off accounts. And so the problem is, because there's no clear guidance, everyone's nervous, right? I mean, Wells Fargo was still going to grow this year. How you don't grow, but that's okay. Um, so, so you know, when I say domiciling elsewhere, I really, I really mean is banks will actually take our money. <laughs> Right, the legislation piece is different and separate. But if I have a banking community is supporting us, that's step one for a business, right? And in the U.S. right now, the banks are so terrified mm -hmm. across the board that I cannot hold an account and be confident in it, right? So that's a problem. I hear you, but that's my biggest. Any last words, Pat? Actually, I just wanted to get back to the sort of the self-regulation piece for a bit. This, I guess, is really a little less about self-regulation and more just about advocacy. I do think there is safety in numbers. Um, you know, being a part of a, a, an advocacy group, I, you know, my, my law firm is part of the, the Chamber of Digital Commerce, which is, which is pretty active in, in, you know, as you would guess, in the space. Um, but I think it's very helpful um, if you have a, an organized group with a lot of members lobbying the various regulators and saying, look, you're raising this issue, but you need to recognize that there are 400 companies doing this, or this is the impact that it's going to have. And I think, I think it's much more powerful having arguments come from a group, advocacy group with a lot of members than it is from individuals. Um, so the last thing I'll add, we didn't talk about it, but um, it's also a hot topic out there is uh, cryptocurrency and taxes. Um, <laughs> what taxes? Um, yes. <laughs> what taxes, right. Um, and so I would just add that there are tax implications for cryptocurrencies, whether you are being paid in cryptocurrencies or trading cryptocurrencies on an exchange, et cetera. So I think that's something that we should also be aware of as people who are in the space like you. Just because there are no crypto regulations does not mean there aren't regulations that may apply that already right. exist. Um, so we'll take questions. Oh, okay. I'll oh, take you okay. back. Yes. Uh, so I've got three questions about the opportunity pieces that I want to give on. But, uh, <laughs> so imagine you're doing a right deed right? and you've got only accredited investors, right? And great, you know who's buying the token first time. But what's the knockoff, right? That, that token gets listed on exchange and then anybody's buying it. And so effectively. Uh, well, a couple of things on that. I mean, they're, they're, the market, you know, like everything else in the space, is evolving at lightning speed. Mm -hmm. But people are looking at the ability to build into smart contracts, the ability, you know, the restrictions for trading going forward. One great project out there is an outfit called Harbor that is introduced a concept called the R token, which will, once launched, allow you to impose ongoing trading restrictions right in the smart contract itself. And secondly, I think more exchanges, either because they're becoming regulated exchanges or at least agreeing on a voluntary basis to, to perform certain requirements, are willing to step up and play the type of intermediary monitoring role that traditional equity market exchanges have historically done. So 
again, we're not completely there yet, but I think within the next few months, we're rapidly going to be moving down that direction where we're going to have more mechanisms in place to do the ongoing monitoring and compliance necessary to do, for example, Reg D and Reg S types of offerings. Does that kind of, does it put, notwithstanding that development, does that put the, uh, the liability on either the token issuer or the actual token that's been credited investor? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think first and foremost, the liability lies with the, the accredited investor. They've purchased the security, they've purchased a restricted security, which means that they have, in order to sell it, they have to meet the criteria that are set out. It's, it's typically what's called Rule 144. Mm -hmm. the, the main thing they have to do is sit on it for a year. If I tried to sell 144A to a non-accredited investor, then I would be the one uh, that would be in trouble. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. okay, that's just straight. And, uh, <laughs> We're not giving out advice. <laughs> If I understand the question properly, um, you're, you're really talking about the Howey test, and there's the one of one of the legs of the Howey test is, you know, are you creating a reasonable expectation of a profit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the investor, so it's, hey, hey, do I think I'm buying a currency? Do I think I'm buying a coupon? Or do I think I'm buying, you know, something? But it's it slightly different, though. It's what you're using it for. I mean, the the example is the cooperative apartment case. Because co-ops, you know, when you when you buy a co-op, you're actually buying shares in a cooperative corporation. So the question is, are, are those securities? And the way the court was able to distinguish that was saying, well, the primary expectation as to why you're buying those shares is to be able to live in your apartment. And even though you may want to and hope that you're going to sell the apartment in the future for more than you paid for it, so you do have a profit interest or desire, that's not the private, the primary motivating factor for buying those shares. It was to be able to live in the apartment. So that that's why the so investor intent is relevant. Motivation on the part of the actual investor that weighs into the way it's viewed. It's a terrible test because it's yeah. very subjective and so, and it's easy to analyze in hindsight. But that is part of the so-called Howey test. Yeah. Gentlemen, up front right here. I feel right now investing in the secondary market. The biggest risk is is change. So one example is about finance, right? Finance has become, quickly become the largest exchange in the world. And then we find out they didn't even have a license with the Japanese government. Now they are thinking they are going to model. So what's the risk there for us who buy things from finance, let's say? I mean, what, what's the chance you are starting to say, okay, I'm regulating. What does regulation of uh, exchange mean? You know, if they had an insider trading last year, <coughs> SEC said, okay, from now on, I have regulated. What happened before? I care. Or they can say, from when you start, you have any insider trading, I'm going to put you in prison. That would totally shut them down. That happens. You know, what's going to happen? You know, what's the biggest risk there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think in look, let's talk about the the U.S. I, I can't really talk about you know the, the laws of Japan, but if you you have a trade, you have essentially two types of trading platforms in the U.S. You have a registered exchange, and you have an, an alternative trading system, an ATS, which is effectively a, a brokerage firm. Um, and if if you have a, you have an entity that wants to provide a secondary market for securities, or let, let, let me actually take a step back, right? If you have an entity that wants to provide a secondary market, let's say for, let's call them tokens broadly, um, that, that secondary market needs to understand what it is that it's allowing to, to be traded on its market. So if it's trading purely commodities, for example, um, and there are you know, no derivatives whatsoever, purely commodities. It probably can, can exist simply by making sure that it's registered with FinCEN or, or various state entities, um, you know, um, and it's not going to be regulated directly other than with respect to fraud by the CFTC or by the SEC because it's not trading securities. Now, if it starts trading tokens, let's say, 
and the, and and those ter tokens turn out to be securities because the SEC comes in and says you're trading a bunch of stuff that's you know we're applying the Howey test here. These things are are. Uh, these tokens are, are securities. Now what you have is an unregistered exchange. And that exchange is, is, is operating in violation of, of the securities laws. So, you know, the, the SEC is going to demand some sort of remedy. Uh, you know, unclear exactly what that remedy would be at this point. It could be anything from shutting them down uh, to, to, you know, making them register and, and, and so on. In terms of the investor, you know, if the investor is buying something that it thinks is he or she thinks is a, a, a token and it's not a security but turns out to be a security, that investor has rescission rights. That investor could go back to the issuer of that, that security that was not, was not issued in accordance with U.S. securities laws and say, you sold me something that's a security, but you didn't tell me it was a security, give me my money back. So that creates a whole lot of issues, right? right? I mean, the issuer is in all kinds of hot water. The exchange is in all kinds of hot water with the SEC and the federal regulations. And that's, that's not even bringing in the Justice Department and potential criminal violations. You know, if you've got a truly offshore exchange yeah. and the SEC can't touch it, right. then it's a different set of factors. It doesn't mean you're okay. It just means it's a different set of factors. Right. It's a different regulatory regime. I have a question here. I think we'll take one more after you. Did you have a question? Yeah, I have a question about um, how EOS did their raise with raising it on Ethereum and now they have another platform that they're going to issue an EOS token and how they're going to, so getting back to your question about two different tokens, is that the new, is that the new way? Because I, I hear there's some problems with FinCEN now with them having an airdrop uh, EOS tokens to the whole people who bought Ethereum on the raise. That goes to the whole cross, going cross-chain, right, and going, and EOS is building their own infrastructure, right, and so we have an Ethereum token, but there's nothing to say that we wouldn't build an ERC-20 token on Hyperledger, let's say, right. So the to same token, just different place and different backing. There is, again, no clear guidance as to how to do that from the government perspective, but, you know, in the blockchain world, there is definitely ways to do that, and if we had our own blockchain, which we may do, right, down the road, our token would move over there as well, right? And so that's what we're working through with our lawyers right now. How do you do that? Can trigger tax issues too, by the way, going back to your point. Yeah, it's property. IRS tokens, tokens to property, to be really clear on yeah. what tax. Unless you're using it for, I mean, we could go back and forth. But unless you're getting paid. Yes. 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 Unless you're doing taxes, it really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on how you use it to, to um, Joel's point. I know we have a lot of questions. I'll ask for one in the back. You have a gray jacket on, and then um, and then we'll end. What is your opinion on decentralized exchanges when it comes to uh, regulation and security? I think that's a full panel. I know, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, centralized exchanges. At decentralized. Decentralized exchanges. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating is um, decentralized exchange in the securities law. I mean, if you're if you're trading a security, there's regulation somewhere by the SEC. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, how is it being traded, right? And, and who is making money? Look, I'm going to show my age here, right? Because I, when, when I think about decentralized exchanges versus centralized exchanges, I think about Napster in the late 90s and, and music and how, you know, the, the, the music uh, that was traded was, was exchanged on, on Napster, went through a centralized server versus LimeWire, which was a peer-to-peer -peer network. Right. Right. And so I think of centralized versus decentralized exchanges in sort of the same manner, right? Centralized exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange, centralized. Decentralized, all right. You got you have to have software somewhere. Who's giving you the software? Is somebody managing that software? Probably not. Right. But you have folks buying and selling. Is there an intermediary somewhere? Is somebody somebody making money off of buying and selling securities as a business? Maybe, if they are, then they're a broker-dealer, they have to be registered as such, but probably not. If I just have my own account, I trade occasionally for my own account, or, you know, I'm, I'm holding, presumably, you know, I'm, I'm holding some sort of tokenized asset, some sort of tokenized security in my wallet, and, uh, you know, I'm using the decentralized exchange to trade with you, you know, on a one-to-one -one basis, then you may turn around and sell it to somebody else. 
you know, it's, it's, it's a security. It had the security had to be issued as we've discussed. You know, is, is there, with any sort of trading platform, there's, there, there is, there are quotes typically. So the, the typical exchange, you know, if you have the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or, or BATS or one of them, you have what are called market makers, right? These are folks who are buying and selling and providing liquidity and they're quoted. So if you go onto the New York Stock Exchange, you can see a quote. I wanna buy Apple, I see the bid ask spread. You know, somebody will sell it to me for 120.01, somebody will, you know, somebody will buy it for, for you know, 119.99, so there's a two cent spread, and there's all kind. There, there, I mean, we can get really deep into market structure, but the you know the idea is that there, there's 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 quotation going on, right? And somebody know that that's how you get transparency in pricing. How is that happening on a decentralized exchange? And is somebody providing those numbers? I mean, the, the, the bottom line is the SEC will be very interested in it. <laughs> They're going to ask a lot of questions, but I don't know. I mean, the, the short answer is I don't know. I don't know if it's an exchange, and I don't know. I don't know if somebody's acting as a broker. I don't know if somebody's acting as a clearing agency. I don't know if there are transfer agents involved. I mean, there's a whole host of stuff that we could sit and probably talk about for the next 12 hours at least. You know, the crypto market's in love with decentralized exchanges, but I'm, I'm going to show my age too because we have a compliance person on. on Panel in. When I'm moving my money around the world, I kind of like the old-fashioned notion that there's, there's some adult supervision somewhere in the process. And right. I think the biggest challenge of centralized exchange is that there is no supervision because, among other things, there is yeah. not even a jurisdictional yeah. situs for that exchange. And so even if we want to try to regulate it, I don't know how you would even begin. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's technology ways to think about that. And also just remember that some of the money transfer laws we're dealing with are from the steamboat page in the South. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I think we answered your question. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to end, um, but before we end, just to um, allow the speakers to each say how the audience can reach you, because as you can see, there are lots, of, lots more questions. Um, do you have a Twitter handle? Do you have, an, are you comfortable giving an email? Um, um, yes. Oh, we can start with you, Matt. Uh, let me just jump in. Uh, <laughs> e easiest way is email. Uh, M as in Matthew Comstock, C-O-M-S-T-O-C-K, at mmlawus.com. Okay. Alana? Um, so I'm on Twitter, Alana A. Roazzi, R-O-A-Z-Z-I. I never changed it. Um, maiden name. And then also my email is Alana, A-L-A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, at MetaX. Meta, like Meta, X .io. J Teltner, J T E L P N E R at S and W S A N D W dot com. Olienka Odenarin. Um, you can email me at Olienka, O L A Y I N K A at P L U S T O U dot com. Um, and if anybody has any questions for me, you can reach me at Crowdy Advisors on um, Instagram and Twitter. And um, my email is mmurat at darkcogentlaw.co. Sorry. <laughs>